You are listening to a special Ukraine Watch edition of European Values podcast. This episode was created within the frame of the Information Defense Hub with the support of the European Cultural Foundation. So it is my great pleasure to have another EVC podcast with our Ukrainian experts uh, who are part of our project called Information Defense Hub. And today we have a special guest who came here from Brussels, uh, where she temporarily lives. Uh, I have a pleasure to welcome here Victoria Vdovichenko, a researcher and associate professor from Boris Hrinchenko University in Kiev. And uh, Victoria is uh, one of the strongest voices of Ukrainian experts uh, outside of Ukraine. And yesterday we had here a great panel on the Western assistance. So I will somehow repeat these questions, <laughs> if you don't mind. So like the most important question is, uh, is the West doing enough or is the West providing the proper assistance to Ukraine so that Ukraine wins this war? Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for organizing the European Values uh, Center Summit and uh, raising awareness about uh, other representatives of uh, media, politics, business, you know, what's being done in Ukraine and what are the needs of Ukraine in this respect. So answering your question, yes and no, that's basic one. What is doing enough? No. Uh, can it do more? Yes. And uh, let me uh, briefly try to uh, kind of elaborate on what might be done better and what is going on now. Uh, in terms, of course, of the military assistance, uh, not only the EU, but uh, other member states in particular, if we talk about the EU space, uh, are relating a lot of the fundings, uh, for example, our Bolt uh, Baltic states uh, from Latvia specifically who is donating more than 40% of its national budget to the military support of Ukraine, Lithuania, Estonia uh, outside of uh, EU still in the European space it's UK and of course the United States so we heard yesterday the figures of uh, the special representative from the Senate uh, committee on about 70 billion dollars, we know that the support of uh, the EU is already counting mostly on specifically these days to have extra 18 billion uh, euros uh, for let's say budgetary needs but also support of let's say governmental structures of Ukraine in 2023 a part or a side of 22 billion uh, euros sorry already announced by Joseph Borrell you know as a special assistance uh, via peace facility program and instrument which is interesting enough that EU is for the first time in its history using it for the military support side, apart from the humanitarian aid and all other aids uh, as uh, EU was providing. Second point, of course, whether this uh, uh, military support is enough, not so much. And we every day you, you can hear our governmental representatives, but also civil society expert representatives that the air defense system is something we drastically need together with the ammunition, special ammunition, let's say, for both our armed forces of Ukraine, but also territorial defense units, specifically as the winter is coming. So it needs a special ammo in order to make sure that our uh, 
uh, warriors and <laughs> soldiers are uh, nicely equipped uh, in order to have something to do. And in this respect, we are also not only talking about HIMARS, Caesars, IRIS and other air defense systems that are, are under the negotiations. We also talk about the opportunities of other countries to contribute. For example, two days ago, the National Alliance of France uh, increased its uh, military budgets uh, for Ukraine from 100 million euro to 200 million euro. And thanks to the advocacy that our politicians are doing also and civil society experts. So the uh, Italian Republic is still waiting, you know, and hesitate a bit on uh, uh, supporting and providing the military aid uh, to Ukraine with special uh, systems that Ukrainian uh, Ministry of Defense was requesting and Ukraine as a governmental institutions were requesting. So we are still in the natural waiting for this support to come and we want to make sure that finally European countries but also EU and as well as other partners, let's say Western support partners, will uh, maintain this trust uh, and again equilibrium in maintaining and supplying what is needed by the, and what is being requested by the Ukrainian government. Even on the macro uh, financial instruments and uh, assistance, uh, there was only not only the EBRD but also International Monetary Fund uh, who was projecting how much uh, of the needs uh, for the budget of Ukraine is going to be in 2022, not only but 2023 to be precisely. So it's from three to four billion, uh, uh, let's say, dollars, uh, but mostly if the missile attacks and the drone attacks uh, on the energy and critical infrastructure will continue, so it's up to five billion uh, that uh, monthly Ukraine will need in order to support uh, and maintain its status, let's say. So it means that all of the governments and uh, uh, infrastructure, as well as the systems, as well as the uh, maintenance of the social schemes and the pensions and the salaries will continue as it is for a moment now. And therefore, uh, the needs of Ukraine are very much immense and huge. And we have to acknowledge that, that uh, we are still don't know what will be the Russian responses, you know, in these days when the money still will come. And we know we definitely need that uh, to understand both of our European but also international partly that uh, it's not the time for the bureaucracy or the red type to prevail. It's time to be faster fasting up in our innovative solutions and creative joint solutions, and that's what Ukraine is needed. Because uh, the point is just not because uh, waiting or helping Ukraine as a one-way source. The point is just Ukraine is helping EU to maintain itself and I understand it. what that. is that for them. Yeah, I will else. definitely ask you oh, a question on that. But before <laughs> we go to that question, uh, you mentioned needs, but I think now Ukraine has a very urgent, pressing, immediate needs because winter is coming. As specifically, I didn't mention that I started with the military, but the second most important, let's say, from the crucial needs is the energy needs. So uh, the, ter uh, the generators or the power generators, to be precise, like how it's something that we definitely need. The supplies for our energy infrastructure very much need because we don't know what, what will be attacked, when, how. So we need extra supply also to have it in our stock and to be able to, let's say, to have a spare parts in order to, if the attacks happen, 
solutions to, to renew it as fast as possible. We definitely need support which contains to food, uh, uh, beverages, uh, uh, clear water, especially for the deoccupied territories where people already are in the need and the winter is definitely coming. There is no electricity, provided. no kind of these basic sources there. I'm not talking about even the big cities like Kiev, for example, where are frequent blackouts and the people stif separately, you know, kind of located there. And of course, uh, you've heard uh, the announcement from the mayor Klitschko that there is a plan of uh, general evacuation, you know, of uh, Kiev as a big city of three million people to ha make it happen. So we don't know whether it's going to happen, but at least uh, can you imagine three, th three million of people being evacuated? So it's, I think it's the, the, uh, the worst case scenario, but still we should think about that and, and be prepared for the things concern the EU member states because Absolutely. many of these people will not stay in Ukraine. Yes, and now they will have to be back to the EU countries. Some of them to be back, some of them just to go uh, to the EU countries. There are also people who never left Ukraine and we have to raise awareness about uh, their safety measures. We also have to think uh, in terms of uh, understanding that uh, ecological crimes is something that we never been talking so much at the nutshell. So it's maybe not the short term uh, a requirement, but it's important. We have to understand that uh, with the newly liberated territories, we need to have a demining still happening because the security should be prevailing. If we're thinking about the next steps of what we are talking about reconstruction in this conference, we're talking about the opportunities for the business development and stuff like this. And third, but the most important uh, thing is just to think about people people, how to uh, support them in the most uh, burning and important issue. Uh, firstly, to focus that their priorities uh, is to be back to Ukraine, the majority of them still have them, and then make it happen. You know, uh, after the security should come the opportunities to these people. So these people have to understand that uh, for this generation and for the upcoming generation, there are such prospects. And uh, I very much like yesterday when you said that Ukraine also has a lot of things to offer to yes. the West and that by helping Ukraine, the West or European countries are also helping themselves. Yeah. You made some really interesting comparisons about the work of public administration in some countries and in Ukraine. Uh, could you just elaborate on that? Uh, in what way the West is helping itself? by? kind of providing assistance to Ukraine right now. Let me give two brief examples, you know, like of uh, public services. I really like this example, but it's something I, I personally experienced, you know, coming to Belgium and living in Belgium and nothing like uh, a stereotypically being done, you know, you cannot open the bank account like that in a scratch as it's and how is it in Ukraine? You cannot actually receive the social supports or something schemes till you're waiting for two months uh, till the, they even reach to you or reach out to you. So we are not talking about e-journals or e-registration as the process happening. We are talking about paperwork happening. You cannot actually make sure that the bank accounts uh, services will be so much plausible to you. At the same time, um, we can do it through uh, in a nutshell. You cannot open it so quickly business as it is still open is still possible in Ukraine you know in 14 minutes you are uploading all the documents Dia, Dia right. is doing that online Dia and then checking then is the app sorry for those who do not know it's a special uh, let's say app uh, produced by Ministry of uh, Digital Transformation you know like still operative prior to the full-scale invasion and continuing to maintain its services as such so when such people, dynamic, innovative, eager, fostering, you know, motivated, come to the European countries, 
European countries were not ready to do that. I mean, to, to accept such people. And that was a huge difference because, you know, like uh, Europeans were expecting us to be, you know, someone who will only reach uh, to the social schemes and, and not to, to contribute and wait to be helped. I remember the shock from the Belgians, like when the first Europeans, after two months of staying, they said, oh, we're going to be back to Ukraine. And there's this shock of Belgian eyes were, how, why? There is nothing, there is war there. You're receiving our social support. And Europeans were saying, Ukrainians were saying, oh, you're not prov providing us with something that we can do. It means working here. We can contribute with our innovations. We can contribute with uh, uh, what we are dynamic in our country doing. And if you don't provide us or limit us in that, because many of the countries are limiting preferentially giving it to the nationals or the citizens of the EU, which is quite understandable. But at the same time, limiting Ukrainians doesn't mean that these countries can contribute. It can, they can contribute even more if they rethink about what is the social support that should be given to Ukrainians and what kind of uh, added value Ukrainians are bringing with them. Because it's not about a brainwash or something or brain drain from Ukraine. Totally new concept is brain winning, you know, uh, of Ukrainians. Because uh, uh, if uh, the European countries are not contributing to such a demand and request, Ukraine is going to be back. The problem, I, I remember my colleague uh, from the panel was uh, absolutely brilliantly uh, quoting one of the reports from her Polish uh, colleagues uh, and the poll they were making that how many of millions of Zlotys actually Ukrainians contributed, those who flee out of Ukraine, staying in Poland, and it was triple more than those social payments that Poland provided to all of the Ukrainians being there. So being economically clear and transparent, if Ukrainians are making so much of the added values, why are the European countries cannot th take this Polish example of understanding that it's a win-win situation, that Ukrainians, actually both scholars, business representatives, uh, service workers, they bring what we call the new dynamic. And this new dynamic, to tell the truth, is not so much liked in some of the capitals because uh, we understand that because they understand that we are actually much more advanced in what is called European values and dynamics and the democratization. We do not need to be democratized, as many of the donors are thinking in contributing to the donor projects uh, in Ukraine. Democratizing Ukraine is something outdated of the 20th century. We are in the 21st century. Ukraine can show you how to do democratically all and how to fight for the European values. Yeah, I think these are very, very strong and convincing arguments. But uh, the problem is that not everybody in European societies is so convinced that we should continue to help Ukraine because there is always this kind of a demand to help your citizen first. So how would you, again, maybe we will repeat a bit ourselves, how would you respond to these kind of arguments that uh, Czech government, Polish government should take care first of all of uh, Czechs or Poles? Yes, you are right that uh, the uh, social, let's say, uh, fees that these people pay, uh, they also cover their own medical uh, insurance, are higher than the governments are spending on assistance to these people. But how else would you try to convince these people that it is in their interest to continue to help Ukraine 
despite the fact that these people will have problems to cover the bills for electricity, gas, lights. And that's one of the stereotypes that normally has been uh, produced or replicated by some politicians in these countries, but also journals of the country, so that the high energy prices is because of the war in Ukraine. It's not. Uh, let me explain one thing. I'm always asking this question specifically in the Western European, not Central European, but mostly Western European countries. Do you understand what does it mean that Russia wins? Do you really understand what are the implications, both politically, economically? Because I, I, I actually, when I'm asking this question, and the people are a bit of shocked. And how do they respond? What actually, do they, they do not, because they are silent. They've never been thinking in About such it. a perspective, you know, like, okay, Russia wins, so what? We will have a business as usual. I said, no, it doesn't work like that. And they say, why? I said, because you, you tried to do that. Did it work out in the previous decades and generations? No. Why do you think the Russia is going to be different now? I mean, not. Now it's been in, in a, such a shape that uh, if it wins, it's going to be much more of uh, the war crimes, authoritarian regimes happen. This is what you want for the European future? Really? Do you think about that? And the second point I'm also asking, what does it mean for you if Ukraine wins? Are you ready also for that? Do you have a scenarios? Because it's very interesting, you know, like to hear what about we are talking in this conference about Marshall Plan for the reconstruction. Again, from a perspective of us big Western Europeans giving something to Ukraine. And I'm saying it's not going to work. And it was in 1945, you know. Uh, the things now is just, uh, um, I really like to, to, to question that. Ukrainians are providing the substantial amount of support in order to maintain the European values in action. Alive. Alive. At the same time, economically developing also some of the countries. At the same time, socially changing this mindset, silent or sleeping beauty mindset of the Europeans who forgot how was it to fight for that 70 years ago. Really, there are new generations who do not know what is the Second World War. We echo that because uh, we had an, a legacy in our grannies and uh, the, 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 uh, our parents who were telling us, you know, what this was. And we continued this non-ever-stopping process in Ukraine because we were fighting in the Granite Revolution in 1991. No, not many people know about that. 2004 in the Orange Revolution. And then again on the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, actually 13 to be precise, in November 2013. And then continuing with the eight years of uh, war, which can, is actually making us resilient. And I'm also asking the question after that, to what extent should you ask again Ukrainians to be resilient? Eight months, did they prove that we are already resilient enough? So maybe you should listen more to what the Ukrainians are saying, that uh, the Russian Federation is not going to stop on the borders of Ukraine and uh, the legacy of the history of Baltic states and the Poland and Romania, actually, which is interesting now, understands that. Second point, do you think the Russian Federation will bring you the added value in order to say what is the rule of law? Really? Look at the war crimes for that and how the violation of the international law is happening. Is that what you want for your future? 
Third point. Yes, Ukraine is being criticized again for the corruption and stuff like this. I wanted to say exactly. that. Exactly. I know. Because I wanted to be a devil's advocate. I know. That's normally it's the this question the that everyone that asks us. And we always have the arguments to present. So what has changed this corruption? The point is just the people and their demands and intolerance to the corruption. That's what's changed. It's never been so Some much. Some of you said yesterday, and if it was your, another panelist, said there is a now kind of almost zero tolerance of corruption. It's not almost, it's zero tolerance. And why is that? Corruption. And I tell you why. Please. We are losing our lives. So if we, we absolutely, frankly, telling it to our politicians and actually the representatives of big business, if you want to be back to the business of usual, seriously, you'll never, uh, don't even think about that. Because uh, uh, the, Ukraine, the situation of the war, of the full-scale invasion, touched not every third, not every second, every first Ukrainian. Mm. It never used to be like that in our history, that we are now, it doesn't mean that we do not criticize the government, we do. But this criticism is very much constructing what needs to be changed. And the government, as well as the politicians, are listening to us. Because first of all, they want to maintain their power, but at the same time, they want to deliver the services which is the better for the, uh, for the, uh, the citizens. Otherwise, they will lose the citizens. And what are we going to have? Ukraine without the Ukrainians? What kind of victory is that, you know, for the politicians? So uh, now the zero tolerance or Ukrainians becoming natural watchdogs for the other Ukrainians who are in power, let's say, is the mechanism is going to be totally different than it used to be before in the history. Victoria, your name symbolizes victory. Victory is in my and name, yeah. listening <laughs> to you, I have now no doubts that you would succeed as a, as a society, as a country, as people of Ukraine. So I would like to wish the best, uh, you know, on that kind of a very uneasy and very, I would say, dramatic and painful journey. But uh, I wish there are also more people like you who are able so clearly to explain it to us, what's happening, to understand what is good, what is bad, what is, uh, uh, who is the victim, who is not a victim. So all the best to you. And uh, this is our end of our today's podcast. Uh, You've been listening to our talk with Viktoria Vdovichenko, Associated Professor of Boris Rinchenko University from Kiev. Uh, we, and this is, uh, Victoria is also our uh, Information Defense Hub uh, Fellow of the European Value Center. Last but not least, uh, let me remind you that you can follow all of our work on our social media profiles, like on Twitter, Facebook or YouTube and also feel free to subscribe to our regular newsletters that will bring you the latest news and analysis of the situation in and around Ukraine.